Also, uh, we have several new member candidates. I'm going to make sure you keep them on your radar screen. Um, Joe and Tricia Farrell are in their second week. Um, CM and Amanda Morrison are in their second week as new men member candidates, and Meredith Fain is in her second week as a new member candidate. Micah Farrell is in his first week as a new member candidate, and uh, so Lord willing, we'll welcome some new members next week, and then uh, Micah will be after that, and maybe more in the coming days. So that's really encouraging. It's encouraging to see people take um, the appropriate steps to love Jesus Church and uh, to enjoy the blessings of church membership and come under the uh, loving care of the church and its discipline. And uh, uh, it takes a lot of faith to do that. It takes a lot of faith to do that, especially in the day in which uh, we live where commitment to anything and submission to anything um, other than myself is kind of the way of the world and in, in pretty much the way of the church in the United States today. And so it's a gift to see the people of God have faith and love for Christ's church and love for their own souls. Um, so we come to the rich young ruler this morning. And uh, why don't we just pray uh, before we read this text. Righteous Father, hallowed be your name. And may more of your kingdom come and your will be done in the hearts and lives of your church this day. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. May you fill me with your spirit and your church with your spirit as we study, as I preach and as we hear truths that you, Lord Jesus, have given for us to save our souls. And may we cast off all fleshly efforts and merits and entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. Thank you, Father. In your Son's name, amen. Well, the rich young ruler shows up in um, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, they're all fairly similar. The question I have is kind of, uh, it's kind of broader in Luke's gospel to start, and of which this particular story, we, we, we move actually from, par we've been in some parables, you know, these particular illustrative stories that Jesus told on purpose for um, the edification of the disciples and and even for those who would be unbelieving to not be able to understand truth. And so, um, but here we actually aren't, we're not in a parable. It's not the parable of the rich young ruler. This is a historical encounter of Jesus with this uh, rich religious ruler, okay? This someone who has great authority amongst the Jews, likely. And uh, here's, here's a question I have, and this story will be a particular example of this. But why in Luke's gospel... Why in Luke's gospel are people called rich in 13 instances and only one of them is positive? Why in Luke's gospel in 13 instances are people called rich and only one of them is positive? And I'll just give away the one uh, that's positive. It's Zacchaeus. It's Zacchaeus. Only one of them is positive, and, 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 I, and I can just go through them quickly. In chapter 1, verse 53, Mary, um, she says, The rich he has sent away empty. In 624, Jesus says, Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. 1216, the parable of the rich fool. Right? More barns, more barns, more barns, so I can say to my soul, relax, eat, you know. Drink, be merry. 12.21 So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 14.12 You know, richness, in order for you to, I just quoted rich neighbors. Well, in the context there, the, 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 one of the points that could be made is, you know, Riches command people's respect very easily. 
I don't know if you understand this, but riches command people's respect very easily. And so the point in that particular text is don't just invite rich people over to your home who can then likewise invite you into their home and you receive payment, but invite the poor, the weak, the marginalized, the oppressed. Serve those who can't serve you back. I don't know if I'm going to get a little out of order here, but eh, so goes it with me. You know, one of the... One of the things that I don't think we recognize is how much the church gives itself to respect rich people just for the sake of their riches. And one of the most just clear illustrations to me um, in my life was, and I think I've told you this detail before, if not, here goes. If you haven't figured out yet, I'm not interested in preaching really neat, clean messages that people will listen to on the internet. It's just not what I'm interested in at this stage of my life. In fact, let me get off topic again. So I hope I get back on the track that's already off topic <laughs> and eventually get back to the track. You know, it's like, I hope I preach some boring sermons to you. I, I hope from time to time you just walk away going, well, that was kind of a boring sermon. And I hope that, um, I actually hope that that happens because I think it's good for you. I think it's good for you to discipline you from being entertained by preaching because it's so easily today to be entertained by preaching. The quality of communicators today is as great as it's ever been in so many ways that it um, stirs our, you know, it, it actually is preached with an entertainment value to us. And so I just kind of hope I preach some boring sermons along the way. One track back. One of the most fitting illustrations to me that we often are respecters of rich people just because they have money is uh, way back when our elders from Chicago were stepping in thinking that, you know, our church of 70 to 90 people at the time should be closed down because it was poor stewardship of their time because it wasn't growing fast enough or quickly enough or successfully enough by their standard. And um, uh, one of the things that was said to me, and uh, they already, and I don't know if I've told you this or not, but they already had another opportunity for me. And have I told you this? Some people say yes, okay. But they had another opportunity for me already lined up, you know. So their idea was to close this church down in the next three weeks from the time we were on the phone. And then uh, because... Um, there was a, uh, another core group. One of the reasons they wanted me to go there was because um, they had about 10 people in the core group. And what they said to me was, those 10 people um, gave more, would give more already to the church and its work than our whole church was able to give to. You know? Just how awful is that? That is just so wicked. That is just so wicked. And um, and you know, if I had done that, if I had also been a respecter of rich persons like that, if I had actually done that, and by the grace of God I didn't, you know, but if I had actually done that, I would have probably compromised God's truth for the rest of my life and become a respecter of rich persons and went the way of everyone else. And so, um, why does Luke's gospel, there in 13 instances, speak of rich people and only one of them is positive? So don't be a respecter of rich persons so that you neglect the poor and the weak and the marginalized. Right? Jesus went to the poor and the weak and the marginalized both in Israel and beyond, and found that they more often had faith. So don't just fight over your rich neighbors. Or then 16.1, there's the rich manager who entrusts his uh, stuff to the dishonest manager. In 16.19, the rich man and Lazarus. We studied that recently. Right? In our passage today, 
The text says in verse 23, for he was this rich young ruler was extremely rich. In verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 19.2, Zacchaeus, the only positive example. The only one to throw away his riches and clearly follow Christ and make restitution for his theft. Or in 21.1, where the widow's offering... You know, the widow's offering. So Jesus is watching, and the rich are making their offering, and the widow makes her offering. And Jesus says she gave more than all of the rich people because she gave everything she had to Jesus. And, you know, it, we just have to discipline ourselves and our, discipline our own greed so that we don't easily become a respecter of rich people. We have to discipline ourselves to not want to be exalted in the eyes of rich people. Because what we do is, this, these are the kind of things we do. We go, oh, wow, man, they have, you know, I, I, hear this, I hear this stuff all the time. All the time. You know, somebody who has, I don't know, $100 million. Now we're talking extremely, extremely rich, okay? The standard in Scripture goes way back before that, I think, for us. For us, but just somebody has a hundred million dollars, okay? And so, you know, cause after cause after cause comes up, and they give a hundred thousand dollars there, and 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 we just go, like, the way we respond to this is, man, they're just so generous. They're just always giving money away, you know? They're just so generous. Do you know what a hundred thousand dollars is, you know? 30 times over to $100 million? In terms of buying power in the U.S., in the strongest economy in history? It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. It's nothing. It's hardly generosity. And we just think, well, it's just so generous. It's just so generous. It's just so generous. And I just think, you know, I don't believe it. (laughs) I just think, I don't believe it. I think it's greed. And I think it's keeping up appearance as well. Because with us, because we know, we know that if we're going to keep up with rich people, we have to speak very positively of them. Because people with money are used to being spoken of very positively because they're used to their riches commanding our respect. And so when you come to the rich young ruler, this is what the church of Jesus Christ is today. This is what the church of Jesus Christ is today. And this is why in Luke's Gospel, recorded for eternity, because it would always be like this with the people of God, that they would always be tempted to be a respecter of rich people. In other words, trusting in riches themselves. that this danger would always be right on the precipice of their very faith as they showed up in church every morning, every Sunday morning. And so we have Luke pointing out to us there's real dangers here of trusting in riches and doing it so subtly that no one ever can even point it out to us in a way that actually gets to the heart of the issue. I wrote down, we need to make greed shameful again in the church. So let's read. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And the ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? Now here, um, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I, I actually think that we don't have to, when you read Scripture, you know, um, you don't have to immediately just start throwing stones at the character who's the failure in the story. You know? It's like we overreact in the judgment 
of what's happening here, and, and, and that's not actually helpful for us. So it was common question. To, it was common for Jews to wrestle with the question, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" And then, and Jesus said to him, "Why do you call me good?" This is just a, a fascinating response, you know. <laughs> like Jesus doesn't answer his question. He says, "Why do you call me good?" No one is good except God alone. And it's, it's kind of like tongue-in-cheek. Like, you don't mean to understand that I'm God, do you? No one is good except God alone. So then now Jesus answers this question. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Okay, now, stop there for just a second. Joel's been doing a very good job for us, just a little bit at a time, unpacking the nature of the Ten Commandments. And the way that we typically view the Ten Commandments today is very much like this uh, ruling Jew viewed the Ten Commandments. All right, well, if I, I, mean, I haven't committed it, Adultery, okay, I haven't killed anybody. I have, I have honored my father and, and mother, you know. I, yeah, I even still have a pretty good relationship with them. I'm not bearing false witness, you know. I mean, I, I've, I've kind of got, I, I think I measure up. I think I measure up. Well, in what was really normal in, for the Israel was to think that they were keeping the Ten Commandments and that this was so instilled into them. But they only viewed the commandments outwardly and they only viewed them very simplistically. They never understood the nuances of sin and the subtleties of sin in the human heart. They never um, would go to the level of understanding inwardly and of the heart. This is why right, Jesus came along and he's like, if you ever looked at a woman lustfully, in your heart, you've committed adultery. Jesus was just trying to expound for them the nature of the Ten Commandments that they had entirely overlooked because they didn't want to look at their sin. They didn't want to look at their sin. Right? Show me a church that doesn't want to look at its sin and I'll show you a church that's going to be dead. And it sounds so counterintuitive to us. But it's only in looking at our sin the grace of God increases in our hearts and lives. And so this, he's looking at his life and he's thinking, you know what, I think he's, if, if I was going to give my opinion of this ruler, he's probably a morally upright, generally speaking, outwardly stand-up guy. I don't have any reason to think otherwise. Maybe he's just like the Pharisees. We don't know. That detail isn't given to us. And I wonder if it's not given to us because he's not real just nasty and deceitful and, and treacherous like the Pharisees are. But he certainly still thinks he's keeping the commandments. And of course, if he was thinking right and he heard the commandments again, he would throw himself in the dirt. And he would think, I haven't kept any of these. And not only have I not kept them, I have willfully rejected them repeatedly. But, you know, I want us to see ourselves in this rich ruler because this is the way we are oftentimes with God's commands. We hear God's commands, we process them in some sort of outward form, and they don't really hit us. It's, it's, the commandment just merely stated doesn't really hit us. It doesn't land anywhere. We just kind of hear it. And, but Jesus is the perfect pastor. And so Jesus doesn't just stop at the point of um, saying, well, you know the commandments. Right, Because this guy says in verse 21, and he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now we immediately hear that and we just think, that, well, that's just the height of arrogance. And in some sense it is, but you have to understand that for an Israelite, this was the most important thing for them to do. So in a lot of ways, they would have looked like 
a pretty good citizen. You know, this would be someone who appears as a pretty morally upright citizen in the United States. You know, this is the kind of person that everybody thinks should, in the church thinks should be an elder or a deacon. He said, all these I have kept from my youth. And see, now Jesus says, okay, obviously these commands didn't land with him at, at, the, at a surface level. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. <laughs> now you go, well, why does Jesus say one thing you still lack? Obviously the man lacks everything. But Jesus isn't there to berate the man. So Jesus says, one thing you still lack. And what does Jesus do? He goes to the heart of the man's sin. He goes to the heart of what the man's trusting in. And he gives a very specific command to him that isn't a command that's found somewhere in the law. You can go back to the Mosaic law and find what Jesus said here and that this was a requirement for all to do and all to keep, at least in any kind of outwardly stated form. But for this man, this was the only thing that could heal his soul. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Now, this is really incredible. Jesus doesn't just say, sell all that you have. I read about a guy this week who, um, uh, in history, what, what he did, kind of in response to this kind of a command, he took all his possessions and uh, just took them out on a ship and then just dumped them in an ocean. Yeah? It's like, because if you just get rid of what you have, that's the good thing. And, and there's still books today and then young kind of movements where this is kind of the attitude. You just kind of throw your stuff out because we think that somehow that's godly. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says to this man, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. Just give away everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then he says you will have treasure in heaven. In other words, what Jesus is saying to... What is He saying to this man? He's saying your life is bound up with your trust in riches. Your life is bound up with trust in the things that you have and the things that you possess. And was often typical, as we've already seen, with the Pharisees through kind of the beginning of chapter 16 on, there's been the same theme of trusting in self and of being rich. Your life is bound up with these things. This is what you're trusting in. And and because you have all these riches, you think you have the favor of God. Because you think that the favor of God is always going to raise you up to a higher status in the United States. And you think that the favor of God is always going to bless you with more wealth and prosperity. But Jesus doesn't even just stop there. He says you will have treasure in heaven. He's offering a much more glorious and much more beautiful substitute than just having riches now. I mean, you can gain the whole world and forfeit your soul, or you can take hold of that which is truly life and of riches in eternal life and be a little poorer now. And not just be poor, because here's the real issue. Jesus says, not come follow me. Come follow me. And when Jesus says, come follow me, what does he mean? Because Jesus is headed to a cross. 
In fact, in the following passage, Jesus is going to begin the process of predicting and prophesying about his death and his resurrection. And what Jesus is saying when he says, come and follow me, is what he's saying is to this rich religious man, give up the riches and take up a cross with me. Give up the riches and embrace the suffering of the cross with me. Bear sorrows and shame with me. Give up the riches and be willing to endure the suffering for my name's sake that will be required of you. That's what Jesus is saying when He says to this rich man, come and follow Me. Now think about all of your stuff. And think about your bank accounts. Because no one, you probably don't think you have any greed in your heart and life. Generally speaking, how often are you confessing your greed to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, your degree of confession and your work of repentance is a direct correlation to how much you think you have it. We're the strongest economy in the history of the world, and it's amazing. Christians have no greed. You know, the sins we don't talk about are the ones that are living on and have the greatest strength in the church. Calvin said, if we're not, to the degree they're not willing, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, to the degree that we're not willing to embrace poverty, covetousness still reigns over us. In other words, if Jesus would require poverty of us, bearing a cross, suffering for His name's sake, the degree to which we do not, are not willing to embrace that poverty, covetousness still reigns in us. We long for and trust in and think riches in this life are the thing to value most. The thing to treasure most. The thing to live for most. The reason to get college degrees the most. See, here's what happens with the young, with the young ruler. One thing you still lack, sell all that you have to distribute to the poor and you will have treasure and have not come follow me. And the rich young ruler gave up all his riches and followed Jesus. But when he heard these things, verse 23, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. He became very sad, for he was extremely rich. I mean, if your bank account gets emptied by an, by an expense that you don't want, or an unexpected expense that's large, I mean, isn't it true that the majority of us are going to feel a level of sadness over that? You know, when it's when you find out that braces are going to cost sixty five hundred dollars, six thousand five hundred dollars, right? When you find out braces are going to cost six thousand five hundred dollars, you just kind of feel a little sad about that, right? Who wouldn't? What if it was the government raiding your bank account and bringing it to zero for the sake of Christ? Suffering for the sake of Christ? Being persecuted for the sake of Christ? What if it was the government 
I mean, are you really, are you really ready to give up all you have when Jesus says, come follow me? Because you trust in that which is truly life. Christ is here offering Himself as a substitute for the man's riches, and the man is sad. And Christ is always offering Himself as the more glorious and richer substitute for our riches. And we are sad. Because like it or not, in so many ways, we are extremely rich. And I'm not saying, I'm not even going to oppress you going down like you've heard this a million times. Well, we compare the first world economy of the United States to a third world economy, and we say, well, we're rich in comparison. Well, of course, we have many more things that they have in comparison. But it's also kind of pharisaical to just compare a first world economy to a third world economy and say you've got to live like the third world in the first world. Right? It's just unnecessary. So that's not what I'm saying. But it is true. The amount of modern convenience we have, the riches that pass through our hands and our country day in and day out, we may be more in danger of trusting in riches than any empire in the history of the world. Well, why do, why, do, why do rich people get sad? Why do they not? You know, Jesus is essentially saying here, you can't take hold of eternal life unless you do this. Unless you give up the very thing that you love to love me. Well, how have most people become rich? Most people have not become rich by inheritance. And by the way, be very careful of thinking that you're supposed to live, uh, give a giant inheritance to your children and your children's children. And I'm... Just a bad, bad idea. This is the way rich people think. Rich people think like this because they value money more than anything. So not only do I value money more than anything, I'm going to set up my children and my children's children with money because that will be the greatest thing for them because I value it more than anything and I want them to value it more than anything. No. Inheritance is not actually how most rich people have become rich. Most rich people have become rich by a lot of hard work. And even penny-pinching. Amazing how stingy rich people are. But most people have become rich through hard work, so I, I have worked for it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and the amount of time you've put in to amass the riches that you have, I've, I've worked for it. I have earned it. And that may very well be true. It may very well be true. But it's what money gets you. It gets you freedom from cares in this life. It gets you freedom from burdens that people with less money have to bear and carry day in and day out. It gets you additional modern conveniences and things that you want. And you know what it never says to you? It never says no. Your money always says yes to you. Can I afford it? Yeah. And then you think, and this is the favor of God on my life. And then you think, and this is eternal life. And Jesus says, no. Unlike your money says to you. Jesus says, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. And you will lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. 
and then follow me and bear my crosses and my scorn and my shame. And you will gain eternal life. Where is the rich man? Where is the rich man in Luke's Gospel so quickly ready to follow Jesus? Where is the rich man today so quickly to give up everything to follow Jesus? Where is the rich man who casts his eyes low with a sense of shame, not because it's going to cost him some money? Like the tax collector we studied last week, standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. Where is the rich man who will actually confess his greed and repent of his greed and discipline his greed and listen to pastors and elders who want to discipline his greed with, instead of thinking, wow, he's just really too harsh about my money. I just grow weary of how we want to defend the rich all the time. I don't despise rich people. I I actually have a lot of mercy for rich people because of the burden they bear of actually handling their money in a way that honors God. And it's very different than those who don't have a lot of money to manage in a way that honors God. But I grow weary of how we defend them at all costs because we're all greedy ourselves. And they're going to get us. We're going to ride their coattails to a church building. You know what happens in every church when uh, people with money know that they're going to be asked to give money to the Lord's cause in the life of a church? Do you know what happens like it, when every... At, at every hint of a capital campaign, do you know what happens? Rich people leave the church. <laughs> it's, like, it's like clockwork. It's like clockwork. People who have... And, and so then, God leaves the church to trust in God for what it needs for the days ahead rather than doing just what rich people do and entrusting ourselves to their money too. It's so wicked. And Jesus will have none of it. And so He strips them away. And praise God, He does. Where's the rich man who gives generously because everything he has is Jesus? You realize someone who has $10 million, right? I already kind of said this. Let me say this then. Uh, this will be more personal for our church anyway. Realize, let's say, um, we just think in complete wrong proportion. Because we're sad if we would give up any money. We don't actually trust in Jesus and in, and in eternal hopes and treasures. And we think Christ's not glorious enough um, to give up our money for. And so, like, specific things happen because of that. Like, the person, let's say, who makes $100,000 tithes 10%. Okay? And the person who makes $50,000 tithes 10%. And what we think is those are equivalent gifts of generosity. Those are not equivalent gifts of generosity. You say, well, they're the same percentage. They're the same percentage, but they're not the same gift of generosity. Because the person who makes 50K is bearing a far larger burden in life with their generosity than the person with 100K is bearing with their generosity. Generosity. 
Don't use human standards. Use God's standards. And they get really specific in calling you away from trusting in your money. No wonder why Jesus says what He says. Jesus seeing that He had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now I ask you, is Jesus being harsh with rich people? No, He's telling them plainly that rich people trust in their riches and it's extremely difficult for them to turn away from trusting in their riches to bear the cross of following Christ. And what you're tempted to think at this point in the message is, but I'm actually not a rich person. And I'm not even going to make the case for that. But what I am going to say, if your heart is functioning right, you will hear what I just said and you will think, then what about me? If it's... If it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God, it ought to create a little anxiety in you. It ought to create a little anxiety in me. Then, then, then what about me? Which is exactly actually what it does for the disciples. In verse 26, those, those who heard it said, then who can be saved? If this religious guy who has really followed the law carefully and is upstanding in, in many ways that we would be able to visibly see is, is upstanding as a, as a citizen. And, and Jesus is calling him away from everything to follow Christ. And this is what will inherit eternal life. Then who can be saved? But Jesus doesn't just immediately go to consolation. He actually increases the threatening from something that's just difficult to something that's impossible. But He said, what is impossible with men? In other words, it's impossible with men to be saved. It's not just hard. It's impossible with men to be saved. What is impossible with men is possible with God. It's impossible. It's not just hard, it's impossible. Peter said, see, in Peter's mind, he's thinking it's an impossible. I've given up everything, Lord. See, we, we have left our homes and followed you. And then Jesus gives them consolation and he said to them, now the rich man's out of the picture at this point. He is willing to separate from Christ and take hold of his riches now. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, just to the disciples, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children. And by the way, to the poor, Jesus doesn't always call them away to follow him from their money. To the poor, what Jesus often focuses on is houses and children 
and parents and fathers and wives and mothers. Because generally speaking, to the poor, the family is going to be of far more value than their riches because they don't even have that to trust in. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive, now get this, many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. What does it mean in this time? Calvin wrote this, yet, yet God gladdens his people. I love that. You know? God gladdens his people. What a phrase that we don't really, a word that we don't use very much today. You know, serve the Lord with gladness. God gladdens his people so that the small portion of good which they enjoy is more highly valued by them and far sweeter than if out of Christ they had enjoyed an unlimited abundance of good things. Though persecutions always await the godly in this world, and though the cross, as it were, is attached to their back, yet so sweet is the seasoning of the grace of God, which gladdens them, that their condition is more desirable than the luxuries of kings. Amen? And in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus is calling this rich man to self-denial. Into a self-denial that embraces Christ above all things and all else. And every blessing in this life, in this time, every blessing in this life comes from self-denial and following of Christ. Every blessing in your marriage is not going to come from your spouse getting it all right. It's going to come from you denying yourself. And denying yourself what you want, and denying yourself your ideals, and denying yourself whatever you think should be. Every blessing, it's going to come from self-denial in this time. Every blessing of parenting is going to come from self-denial. You know? Sometimes we get overwhelmed, like with some of the chaos in the home. But, you know, sometimes kids have a way of creating. But tell yourself, I'd much rather have a little bit of this, and I'd rather have a few holes in the wall, and I'd, I'd rather have a broken window, as long as I can have you. And deny yourself. He's calling him to self-denial. The point is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You must give everything up to Jesus Christ. That's the point. You give everything up to Jesus Christ and you deny yourself and you follow him. And if you're pursuing riches, for some, for some people, they will gain riches and they will do well with it. But it will require active discipline of their greed. For some people, they will need to pursue a path that will cost them actual money. They may need to take a... The only thing we think is if I can make a job with more money, that's better. No, it's not. There are a lot of times and reasons why you are going to need to take a job that pays less. Say, no, that's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah following Jesus might seem crazy to the fleshly mind. 
But Jesus says, come follow me, and you will have treasures in heaven in the age to come, eternal life. Stand with me for prayer. Oh, Jesus, forgive us for our greed and our trust and our stuff and our bank accounts and our IRAs and our 401ks and in our earnings and our jobs. Forgive us for our sadness at the threat of losing these things. May we have faith and hope that when you say, come follow me, you are worthy. You are a worthy substitute for all of these silly things by comparison. And may it be true that we give up our lives in this church that every soul here and every family here and every child here and every teen here and every husband and wife and single person in your plan and providence would give up themselves and follow Christ and take hold of Him and endure to the end all sufferings and crosses for His name's sake And may your grace give us gladness at every persecution. And may we bless your name that we are counted worthy to suffer for your sake. And that we have confidence in our sufferings that our reward is made great in heaven. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give glory to your name. You are worthy and glorious and beautiful in every way. More valuable than the riches of luxurious kings, regardless of the crosses we carry on our shoulders in this life. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen.